0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to season two of The Narrative. I'm your host, Jeff Gallett. Thanks for joining me today as we continue this fun, exhilarating, and at times exasperating journey called podcasting. If this is your first listen, I encourage you to follow and review the podcast on your platform of choice. And also go back later and listen to every single episode of season one. I'd actually encourage you to listen to each one over and over and over, as watching the downloads grow soothes my feeble and unfulfilled marketer brain. As you may know by now, I find stories really interesting, and I find the storytellers themselves fascinating. So the idea behind the podcast is to meet people who are great storytellers and to get to know them. For episode one of season two, I'm thrilled that Jesse Cole is joining me. Jesse is the founder of Fans First Entertainment, and the owner of the Savannah Bananas baseball team. He's the infamous dude in the yellow tux, a man who's truly disrupting the way baseball is played, presented, and consumed. Jesse is to baseball what P.T. Barnum was to circuses. Fans First Entertainment has been on the Inc. 5000 list of the fastest growing companies in America, and Jesse's teams have welcomed more than a million fans to their ballparks. They have a quarter of a million more TikTok followers than any major league team does, at a time when baseball is viewed as increasingly tedious and not able to reach younger audiences. Jesse released his first book, Find Your Yellow Tux, and launched it in the most perfect way, with a world tour a world tour that took place entirely within Epcot. Jesse owns seven yellow tuxedos and even proposed to his wife Emily while wearing one in front of a sold-out crowd, and they later got married in the stadium. Jesse also hosts the Business Done Differently podcast. Strap in for this, Jesse is energy exemplified and a true business innovator. He's totally fascinating. So Jesse, welcome to the Narrative podcast. I'm really uh, glad that you were able to join me here today. Excited to be with you. I'll tell you in a little bit about how I stumbled upon the Savannah Bananas and about your story, but I would love for you to share with my listeners your story. Tell me about the Bananas and what you're doing there, and then we'll circle back and go into how I discovered it, and I think we'll kick off a cool conversation from there.
1: Well, I'm just a former baseball guy now running a circus uh, in Savannah, Georgia. Uh, you know, long story short, I, I played baseball my whole life. I, it was everything for me. My father bought a baseball facility when I was younger, so I could work out in the winter uh, up in Massachusetts. Fortunately, get a full scholarship, played out Division One baseball down in South Carolina. Dream of playing pro ball, talking to professional teams. Tore everything in my shoulder just like that. Three tears, career over, and it was uh, probably the best thing that ever happened to me because it guided me into the front office and I uh, started seeing the opportunities to create a game that wasn't just fun to play but was fun to watch and had a 10-year journey in Gastonia from a team that only had $268 in the bank account my first day and only 200 fans coming to the game to end up buying that team, uh, selling it a few years later and going down to Savannah and uh, you know a city that had professional baseball for 90 years and failed and left the city and we came in and proceeded to fail just as like they did, uh, even worse. Uh, and we're fortunate to turn it around now and, uh, we're touring all over the country and it's something I never imagined.
0: It's amazing. So, um, I, uh, stumble across and literally I'm going to use the term stumble across the Savannah bananas. A few months ago, this good friend of mine, who's a big baseball fan, sends me a direct message on Twitter and the direct message has an attachment. The attachment is a video from the Savannah bananas and the video, is of your third baseman Bill Leroy, mic'd up for the broadcast, talking with the announcer, and sharing, prognosticating exactly what he thinks the next play is going to be, and he gets it exactly right. Let's listen to it.
1: I roll it over. I'm going to backhand it on the top, and Manny Machado underhand throw to it first. Oh my God. Look at this. Biko. Oh, come on, Biko. No. I, I literally just called it. That was one of the coolest no, things the heck, I've ever seen. That was the second hop. What the heck? There's no way. Oh, my God. I just had to let that Dude. one Dude, that was Nostradamus. Dude, that was deja vu. I don't know. We just called every second of that.
0: And I was like, that is totally cool. So, of course, I watch it and I do, you know, I said, well, I, I got to watch some other stuff. I got to see what else is going on with this team I've never heard of because this is kind of cool. And the next video I find is the video of your batter coming to the plate with a caddy and a yardage book. Mm-hmm. And, and in the conversation, we're going back and forth on Twitter. I actually just revisited it yesterday just to refresh myself. I said, look at the dude in the background in the yellow tuxedo. And it was the message he sent wasn't just to me, it was to someone else as well. And she commented back, she goes, I just was reading the thread. That's the owner. So we went back and forth and I thought, well, that's really cool. But And I did a little bit of research and watched some other videos and thought, well, that's just kind of cool. And then a couple of months ago, I had Stephanie Stuckey from Stuckey's on the podcast. Right. Yeah, yeah, know her well. and, uh, and Stephanie is friends with you. And I saw something come across LinkedIn that she commented on that you had posted. So I said, "Oh, I got to follow So I followed. And since then, it's been kind of a cool journey. So I thought it was really interesting because I love baseball. I grew up with baseball. And my my earliest memories are my grandmother was blind. I grew up in Southern California, and my grandmother would listen to Dodgers games on the radio. And I would lay on the floor next to her with a transistor radio listening to Dodger games with Vin Scully doing the games. Mm -hmm. And that's where my love of baseball came. From. It didn't come from my dad. It didn't come from my grandfather. Was that
1: in the days of Kirk Gibson. What, what was what earlier you, uh... than
0: that? Earlier than that, we're talking. You know, I'm I'm in my 60s, so it was when you know it was the you know it was Wes Parker and Willie Davis and Don Sutton and um you know Venezuela. It was so, and the funny part is my grandmother, who was blind and couldn't pronounce his name, so I joke about people all the time. She forever, and I tried a hundred times to change it, called him Fernando Venezuela.
1: Because that's what
0: she heard. So I have this love of baseball and much like you wanted to play, wasn't good enough, hurt myself the whole bit. And then as I've gotten older, the game's gotten boring to me, which I find really bizarre for something so embedded in me from such a young age, the game got boring. And when I saw what you're doing, I'm like, oh my God, there's a way potentially to get kids and youth and other people excited about it the way I was excited about it when I was a kid hundred
1: percent. I mean, again, I mean, I saw it 15 years ago, you know, I, I was literally, uh, so before I went into, I became an intern with the team at 22 years old, before I became an intern, I coached in the Cape Cod league. Okay. And I'm sitting there and and now looking at that roster with the Katua Kettleers and Mike Roberts coaching the father of Brian Roberts, the second baseman for the Orioles those many years, every single guy in that team was drafted and almost everyone played in the majors, many of them all-stars. And I'm sitting there in the dugout with the best players in the country. And I was bored out of my mind. I was literally, I I was next to the guys in the best seat on the field. And I was like, this game, you know, you've seen it all to an extent. You've seen the doubles, you've seen the home runs, you've seen the strikeouts. And the games are getting longer. And I was like, I'm bored. And I'm going over to become an intern and potentially run a team. And I got to convince people to watch this with lesser (laughs) baseball players. Good luck. Yeah. And and it was really a big aha moment for me. It was kind of similar. You know, Walt Disney, I got posters of him in my office here. And he and P.T. Barnum are huge, huge mentors. And, you know, Walt sat at Griffin Park and with his daughter, Diane, and was watching her go on the merry-go-round and said, I wish there was a place that was fun for adults and kids. And he had that aha moment. And that's where the inspiration for Disneyland came. And you think about it, you know, we often have those moments, but we don't do anything about it. Mm -hmm. And I was fortunate I had the opportunity to do something about it and and learn with our first team in Gastonia.
0: So so you called it a circus, which I think is really kind of a cool phrase, especially for the owner of a team. But
1: two teams now. Now our professional team is the one that's doing traveling all over the country. But yeah, it started with just a college summer team, one of the lowest levels of baseball there is.
0: And then, and then you, now you have the pro team, which is kind of like I when I lo- read about it and the way you just described it, it's almost like barnstorming baseball that happened back in the day, right? Just going around city to city, get a bunch of people, put on a show, PT Barnum style. And now there's nobody doing it.
1: There's literally no there's no one barnstorming baseball team bringing the show anymore because it it, it there's baseball everywhere. Yeah. Unless you're doing something dramatically different, what's the point? Yeah. And then we're also doing something completely unscalable. We're bringing our pet band. We're bringing our male cheerleading team, our breakdancing coaches, our players on stilts. We're bringing both teams. We're bringing 92 people which the Globetrotters only bring 30. So we're bringing three times the amount of people the Globetrotters bring, um, but we think there's a need and there's a need for uh, fun and, and people to get together and see something they've never seen before. And so we are going all in on
0: it. And, that, and, and you're not doing it. You're not degrading the quality of the game when you're doing it, right? The game is you're still, the players are good players and they're playing at a very high level like the Globetrotters, I guess, is a great parallel because they have really, really skilled players. And a lot of your players have moved on into, into professional careers.
1: We had first rounders, second rounders, third rounders, fourth rounders. Russell Wilson played baseball for me when we were with the Gastonia Grizzlies. Our pro team this past year during our one city world tour, uh, <laughs> we, had, we had 14 guys sign pro contracts. Um, you know, Jake Peavy's going to be pitching for us this spring. I mean, the former Cy Young Award winner. Uh, we're about to announce a former major leaguer will be coaching with us. But yeah, you play better when you're having fun. And I think for us, you know, the big difference between the Globetrotters is our games are outrageously competitive. It's not scripted and who's going to win. But we played four games last spring, two in Savannah and two in our One City World Tour, and the Bananas lost half the games. And because you never know, it's a competitive environment within the show and the circus and the fun. And, you know, again, we've skipped way ahead, but it's just we've found that Major League Baseball games are getting longer every single year. Attendance is declining dramatically, viewership's declining dramatically, and they're losing young fans every single day when the average baseball fan is now over 60 years old. So we said, why don't we create something that we would love? Know we have all millennials on our team. Everyone's in their 20s. And we said, why don't we create something that we'd all want to see? And uh, what's happened is now we have over 900,000 followers on TikTok, 250,000 more than any major league baseball team. And it's crazy because just five years ago, we only sold two tickets. And my wife and I were uh, had to empty out our savings account. We had to sell our house and we were sleeping on an airbed. So when you think about that in perspective, it's uh, pretty amazing. And I try to pinch myself every day and realize that, uh, you know, not many people get to do what we're doing. And it's it's so much fun.
0: So the the root of this is you're passionate about the game. And as you described it earlier, just that, you know, you grew up in it and wanted to go into management. At well, what point did you pivot and say, was it that moment sitting in the dugout that time? Or was it and later? I'm, and,
1: I'm not, and I'm not passionate about the game. Okay. I'm passionate about what, what the game can be. It's a big difference. Okay. I'm passionate about the fun. I'm passionate about Seeing, you know, our players go into the crowd after they score their first run and the whole entire team run after, after they score a run in the crowd and high-fiving every single fan. I'm passionate about watching our players in the fourth inning deliver roses to little girls in the crowd. I'm passionate about our players going on dates with fans in the middle of the game. I'm passionate about seeing 4,000 fans dancing Hey Baby in the middle of the game. We just happen to have a platform that we play baseball. But I'm really passionate about all the other moments that people have never seen before. You mentioned those two walk-ups. I mean, Bill yeah. Leroy, he became most famous when he walked up the plane and introduced himself. Yeah. Now batting for the bananas from UNCG, myself! And then he throws the mic. I mean, it went people went nuts. It was just fun. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I think that was the moment. And then it was a, a ton of failure. You know, When I started as a GM of a team at 23 years old and $268 in the bank account and only 200 fans coming to the game, People didn't know this. I couldn't pay myself for the first three months. Luckily I saved a little bit in college because I had a full scholarship that I was able to live off that. And, um, it was tough, but what I learned was the power of experimentation and just trying things over and over again. I was so fortunate to have an owner who we've become so close. He actually uh, married my wife and I at our stadium. Uh, that's a whole nother thing. And cool. when I proposed, we delayed the game for two hours and it was ridiculous. But that's a whole nother story. Uh, you know, I was empowered to try things, flatulence fun night, salute to underwear night. I mean, midnight madness with games playing at midnight on a Friday night, great community give back game, dig to China night. I mean, giving away port johns colon cleansings, <laughs> donut burgers, donut dogs, taco dogs. I mean, we tried it all. And I got 10 years of experience and not experience where reading and learning and, and, and you know, textbooks like going to school for 10 years. I got real hands-on experience. When we put Flatulence Fund Night, only 200 people showed up. That was a failure.
0: I learned yeah. don't
1: do that again. You know so that's one, what it was about. So that's where I was lucky.
0: So one of the things I've seen since you know I mentioned I've been following on LinkedIn for a while, and one of the things I've noticed is, and I think this is a really cool thing, as a as a marketer, and you just touched on it, you know, failure, more things fail than are successful for most people. Certainly when you're in a marketing or promotional business. And I see that you actually publicize and kind of embrace the failure. I saw a couple of weeks ago, you posted something about one of the first keynotes you you did post pandemic and you showed up and you're, you're well, you know, you showed up in the yellow tux and you got in a room and there was seven or eight people there.
1: Yeah, it was an auditorium of 927 showed up. Okay. Big difference right there. All right, Not 727, but you yeah. know, I'm messing around. But yeah, and it wasn't my first. I've given probably 100 live keynotes. I've been fortunately, you know, paid to speak all over the country for many years. But you know, recently, where you know, I I think the one before was 1,500 people, and then I go and there's 27 people there, and I think uh, I posted today on LinkedIn. It's, you know, how you view things is how you do things, and I've been fortunate to take that mindset of look at everything as a lesson. And I hate the word failure. Uh, Jeff, I get asked that question every single interview. Tell me about your biggest failures. I don't look at them as failures. I look at them as a bats. Pete Rose got out 10,000 times in his career had 4,000 hits, more hits than anyone that ever played the game. He also had 2,000 more bats than anyone that ever played the game. So I look at what what are are the, the lessons, the learning and the discovery. So that's why every night at our ballpark, we do four brand new promotions we've never done in front of a live crowd ever. So when we have 30 games in a season, you're doing 120 brand new things you've ever done before. Probably 100 of them won't work that well, but 20 could be hits. And so we're getting quicker and faster and better hits and huge successes than anyone else just because we're testing more. quantity leads to quality. And so that's what we look at every day. It's like, what are we testing new? What are we trying new? It's the reason why we have almost a million followers on TikTok because we've been testing things every day for a year and a half.
0: So I've got to imagine that that process of ideating what those promotions are has just got to be as fun as it could possibly be. Just a bunch of, whether it's just you or however, could describe that process of how do you come up with, that's a lot to come up with. You know, that many promotions over the course of a year and that many to execute on any given day is a lot only a percentage of what we come up with
1: only a percentage and it's because most teams most companies spend most of their time talking about revenue sales profits they have sales meetings you know they have marketing meetings we have idea sessions every single day there's a difference and it's does your company does your culture value ideas and so you know we started having idea palooza many years ago with our whole team now we do a more individualized uh, with our departments so, we get our groups, our creative, and, and go from there. But yeah, every morning, I mean, I, I wrote down today, I had uh, new ideas for the banana pep band. So, I had 10 ideas on the banana pep band. You know, I had 10 ideas for the banana stand, 10 ideas for walk up promotions, 10 ideas for scoring celebrations. And then I get together with a director of entertainment, our marketing people, and we say, What are we going to try? And that's the key for us. It's so much fun because when you have no red tape, you know, we have no corporate, it's mm-hmm. myself and my wife. You know, I'm in a yellow tuxedo. I mean, I give ourselves permissions to have fun. And I think that's kind of the magic of what we get to do. In a given year, it's a lot of things people, we do that just don't, don't work well. We had a town, you know, the town crier, like, you know, like, hear ye, hear ye. We had him do an intro to a hitter and he walked up and he had this big scroll and he read out, nobody. And he did this whole thing. Crowd was like, "What is going on?" And we posted it on TikTok, and no one liked it. I mean, it was terrible. Yeah, the TikTok then,
0: audience has no idea what a town crier is, right? Yeah, it's, yeah, everyone's <laughs>
1: very confused about that. I thought it was kind of funny. We thought it was kind of funny. We yeah. did it. The thing is, you, you never insult your fans, and so most sports teams they don't realize it, but every single day they're insulting their fans. And I'm not saying this in a negative way. What I'm saying this is because they're taking the dollars from sponsors to put a promotion on the field that's geared just towards that sponsor. This car sponsorship deal or oh, to buy so-and-so, so-and-so. And your fans immediately go to their phones because they're bored. Don't do anything that you don't want to see or that you don't want to be a part of. And we have zero corporate sponsors. We don't have any of that because we're all about the fans. And fortunately, after sleeping on an airbed and having zero dollars and struggling, it started to pay off pretty well.
0: Yeah, I was reading that you don't litter on that sponsorship front. You don't even sell in-stadium advertising or anything, right? You're just this is completely self-sustained, self-supporting.
1: Yeah, it's a terrible business model that we did right before the pandemic. All right, guys, right before the pandemic shuts us down for a little bit, how can we give away and throw away hundreds of thousands of dollars? That's literally what we did. Um, but we we're playing the long game. We believe in long-term fans over short-term profits. And what we actually did is, you know, the outfield wall, which is very valuable real estate mm-hmm. in every sports team, hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars for the higher level teams. We gave it to the fans. We actually have the banana stand wall and we let the fans sign the wall. So the fans are now part of the wall as opposed to corporate sponsors. And, you know, luckily what's happened, uh, we're very fortunate, is merchandise is now triple, triple what we did in sponsorship. And there's probably not a team in the the country. Actually, I know for a fact there's not a team in the country or the world that can say that, even double. And so I see it as every day fans are buying our gear and wearing that. They're advertising us as opposed to us advertising the car dealership, the orthodontics, the insurance company, et cetera. So in the long term, I think this is a big win and already it's started to pay off.
0: And they're doing that, I think, because they have they've developed an emotional attachment, emotional connection to what you're doing. And so they're they're proud to do that. It's not just, you know, it's it's not as though they're supporting their lifelong baseball team. They're supporting a new thing but they've gotten enthralled by it. They think it's cool. They've, they've, be, they've developed an affinity for something quickly and feel part of it, I'm sure. And that's what makes them proud to wear those shirts and walk around in a hat and do whatever they're doing.
1: Well, we, I mean, we made so many mistakes in the beginning. And like, you know, our first shipment of t-shirts came in and there were too many ends and bananas. Like we literally misspelled our t-shirts. But the one thing that we've done well from the beginning is involve our fans in everything. Our fans were involved in the name the team contest. Our fans were involved in name the mascot contest. Our fans designed our jerseys. We even let our fans decide who was going to pitch during games, and like vote. Which the first time they made that decision, our closer led up six runs and we lost the game. Our coach didn't <laughs> love that one. Um, but we we've let our fans decide what cities we go to. We let our fans vote where what's what cities we're playing in and we're bringing our banana ball tour to. So we let our fans you know uh, in, in regards to new rules that we're adding to the game, new promotions, new walk up songs. We let our fans do all of that. What we should do during the game. Um, and so when you bring them a part of the journey, you know, they feel not only a part of it, but they feel this unbelievable ownership. And you mentioned emotional connection. And I think that's something that we will never stop doing. And here's why. It's not just a campaign or who, it's literally who we are. It's the name of our company, Fans First Entertainment. Our missions: Fans First Entertain Always. Every decision we ask, is it fans first? We cannot do that. It's literally in our DNA. When we have meetings, we have an empty chair that represents a fan. What a fan want this. And that's why we have no ticket fees, no convenient fees, which are the most inconvenient fee in the world. That's why every game in Savannah includes all your burgers, hot dogs, chicken sandwiches, soda, water, popcorn, dessert, everything. That's why there's free parking. That's why there's free programs. That's why when you buy merchandise on our website, there's free shipping always. And you get a free koozie, a free decal, a custom yellow box, delivered fresh stamp. It costs us $11. Before they even, we even count the product, before they even buy anything. Like, not a smart business move, but overall, it ends up working out. And we go for very thin margins because we want our fans to feel proud of who they are and what they're doing.
0: So when I was watching the videos, the first videos that I saw, my first thought was, and this is me being old guy um, who's been around or watched you know baseball my whole life. And I thought, man, the opposing team with all the stupid unwritten roles in baseball what does the opposing team think about all this? And my question is like, what does the opposing team think? And then more importantly, what do the other people running teams think about what you're doing? Because what you're doing is pretty damn disruptive on both. fronts.
1: I mean, even our players were like scared our first year. Like, what are they doing? Like our players were against, I remember guys saying, well, I'm not going to, I mean, our players do a choreographed dance every single night. And it's a different dance. Yeah. Literally when we do tours before the game, People like, they're not taking batting practice, but they're learning how to dance. They go, yeah, that's that's very important tonight. And they watch rehearsals. They don't watch batting practice. They watch rehearsals. So yeah, even our guys were against it. And then the other players, yeah. I mean, we have a donut hitter every game. And just like Toga and Animal House Toga, the entire stadium, 4,000 people are chanting donut, donut, every single pitch. And if he strikes out the whole stadium, gets free donuts. It's crazy. All right. But what happens is, and I'll never forget, we're playing in the playoffs last year, and fortunately, the teams won more games than any team in the league, because I think they're having more fun, and we won the championship again last year, and in the championship round, the, the game finishes, and we're feeding the guys. We feed both teams. We do a full catered meal, and we do it right, because that's fans first, and you know, we don't realize it, but we're trying to create fans of anybody we touch, mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm walking out of the stadium, and I'm getting ready uh, to close up shop, and the other team's still there, and I watch three guys from the visiting team walk into our merchandise store and are buying Savannah Bananas merchandise. This is the team they're playing in the championship. I'm like, Oh my God. Wow. I'm like, this is a, this says it all. And I just, the only thing I wish is I wish I had a photograph of them buying it. Cause I was like, this would prove a point. And I think we literally now we're fortunately, we've been able to create fans of the other team, including the other owners. That's another, well, question. I was going to say don't, they don't, the other owners, uh, yeah i mean being being very upfront we hosted the all-star game a couple of years ago and only half the owners showed up yeah. every all-star game every owner shows up it's mandatory but half wouldn't even come and see what we do
0: yeah i would imagine i can just say you know people who are embedded in the way they do things and think that you're changing a model that giving away money that they don't want to give away all those kind of things would you know oh, that's the gonna- breakdancing
1: dancing first base coaches in the middle of the game the, the pre-game weigh-ins before the two teams the the You know, our fans line up about three to four hours before the game every night, hundreds lining up to get in the ballpark. And, you know, we do a full march and have princesses and our players are dancing. Yeah, it's, it's. uh, but I think the big key is you're supposed to know, and most people say, well, who's your target audience? Who's your target demographic? We focus on who we're not for. We're not for those owners. Mm We're not for baseball traditionalists. We are not for the grandpas that want the game to always stay the same. Yeah. And when you're very clear on who you're not for, you can be very strategic and make every decision on then who you are for. And so we start the opposite there. And that's, uh, I don't spend a lot of bandwidth and time focusing on the people that don't like what we're doing.
0: Yeah. I mean, even in my business, I, I would, you know, forever would create content or, you know, whether it be advertising or something else about technology. And I always like to push the boundaries of things and I would take it and, you know, show it to my bosses and everybody would be like, oh my God, don't go show it to them. And I'd show it to them and they, I had enough of a relationship with them. They would look at it and say, I don't get it. I don't understand it. But I'm not the target audience either. Like you're not trying to sell to, we're not trying to sell to the CEO of a technology company. We're trying to sell to a bank or an insurance company or a retailer. And that's a different world. And I don't live in their world. So I don't think like they do. I think Jeff Bezos said it best. You need to be willing to be misunderstood at first.
1: Every single thing that has been disruptive is outrageously misunderstood. I mean, think about it right now, how many people, you know, five, 10 years ago would say, I want to have something in my kitchen that's shaped like an old Pringles can, but it's a speaker and it listens to everything you say and you can talk to it constantly. No one would say that. Same thing with every Apple product. I mean, right, four years ago, you say, all right, um, this thing TikTok is going to be really big. All right, it's little tiny clips, mostly of just people doing dances. Like all the people like, no, but I think, you know, NFTs, you can keep going. As soon as something becomes a little polarizing, that's when I'm very interested. I I said, if you're not getting criticized, you're playing it too safe. If we go like six months and no one's criticizing us, I'm like, guys, we got to start doing something. We're not doing anything. You're not What's pushing the
0: envelope here? anymore here.
1: Yeah, and, and I think like that, that's a very delicate thing to do. Um, but you know, you need to be willing to be misunderstood, just like Jeff Bezos said. And we're misunderstood every day. What do you mean you have in your banana ball games? What do you mean fans can catch a foul ball for an out? What are you talking about? There's no bunting. Bunting's a part of the game. You know, part of those rules. I mean, fan catching a foul ball for an out is because of fans first. That's what we believe. Mm-hmm. But no bunting. Is really as much for the criticism and to go against baseball traditions as anything. Yeah. Like and because my dad as a kid said Jesse swing hard in case you hit <laughs> yeah. and I've always yeah. had this mindset of swinging yeah. hard. And but anyways, but that's that, that, that's part of It's part of the strategy. You know, we're trying to do things a little different um, and to create conversation, which I think conversation is how you move the ball forward.
0: Yeah. Um. So tell me about the yellow tucks and how that all started. And then I know you've you've actually written your a book, find your yellow yeah. tucks. Tell me about that.
1: Yeah. So Yellow Tux, uh, long story short, I was putting on a show with our first team in Gastonia and I was dressed like everyone else, you know, polo pants, you know, trying to look the part of the GM of the team. And someone who's read every book about P.T. Barnum was like, you know, I'm pieing fans in the stands. You know, we are dancing. We are. It's a circus. Why am I dressed like everyone else? And so I realized I was putting on a show. I need to be a showman. So jam my inner P.T. Barnum and called my buddy who owned a bridal formal shop. And I said, I need a, your best P.T. Barnum look. He's like, all right, I got something. So he gets me a, a black tuxedo with big tails and a black top hat. And the first game, it was 101 degrees, and I almost melted. <laughs> and so that night, I was like, this ain't gonna work. So I went and said, what about yellow? And you know, our former team, the Grizzlies, had yellow in it. Ironically, the bananas, it worked perfectly. Yeah, that's great. Uh, so I searched. I found tuxedos.com. I overnighted a tuxedo for 50 bucks. I got it the next day, wore it, and everyone wanted pictures. And they're like, that—that that is you, my man. And I realized it was just my uniform. And you know, I've been practicing for all those years. When I put this on, this was my uniform. And just like in baseball, when you put on your uniform, you know it's game time. When I put this on, it was showtime. And so I started to realize like, I was channeling a whole nother part of me. I was amplifying who I am. I was going all out. And you could see, I mean, you, know, you can have this interview at 4 a.m. and I would still bring the same energy. I'm in my tux and that's who I am. And I love it. So I, as I started to share what we were doing and the differences and how we were standing out, I got fortunate to give a big, big keynote maybe five years ago uh, at, at ProfitCon, an event with about 400 financial advisors and accountants, not the audience a baseball <laughs> team owner should speak to. And they asked me what the topic of the speech would be. You know, we want to talk about you know, finding what makes you different, what, what stands out. And, and I said, find your yellow tux. And they're like, oh, good title. Fun. Go do it. And I did it. And I'll never forget My first big keynote. And it was almost a two-minute standing ovation. And I walked off the stage and they said, you need to write that in a book. And so I immediately took action and put into a book and shared, you know, how personally I've been able to stand out, how anyone can stand out, how you can do it yourself, your life, your business, and then also your legacy. And so I wrote that four or five years ago, and now I'm ready for the follow-up, the second book coming out in about four months. And it's been a real fun journey. And I'm just, I think the big key with anything is just start, uh, you know, often we're we're thinking, 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 you know, stop thinking, start doing. And I say, stop standing, stop standing still, start standing out. And that's kind of one of the main messages of the book.
0: Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that, you know, one of the things that most marketers like in my career path or the people, you know, the, the industries that I've been in tend to get a paralysis by analysis. We just we overanalyze the results on everything. We look at everything. You have to find tune and crap. And we're not the ones who are willing to say, you know what, just go try it. What's the worst thing that happens if we try it? And to your point, you can call it failure, but the more reality is, it's not failure. It's just another step on learning. You take if you take insight from everything that you do, and uh, you know, I think that that's a, the the willingness to experiment is great. And I think the willingness to experiment. I'm sure you know when you were starting to do experiment, you were on a lifeline. You you didn't have a lot of a lot of wiggle room in the whole business. Well, wait, actually,
1: model. I, actually, I had nothing to lose. Now we've never had money. So we always have to outthink, not outspend. But yeah, I mean, we had nothing to lose. We were a tiny team in Gastonia. The, the, the media didn't even know who we were. We were just these little guys that, a team that failed for seven years. So I think one of the biggest challenges successful companies uh, have to experimentation is their past successes. You know, what got you here won't get you there. And often that will hold you back because you've been so successful. I get scared that more success we have, that that will limit us in not trying something because we're afraid of taking away from that success.
0: Yeah, I mean, do you get do you worry at all about getting stuck? You know, the Globe Charters are a great example, and I don't know that I would call them stuck. They've been around mm-hmm. since the '30s, but they have to do the same thing all the time. You know, they have to do the bucket of confetti. They've got to do the 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 pass. They don't have of, to. They choose, but to. they choose to. But,
1: but, but do I feel like we're going to get? I'm not trying to cut you off. I'm no, no, no. It's show, and I'm and I'm close with some of their top executives, and yeah. I've been a part of that journey a little bit. I think for us, because we built a culture of ideas and my biggest fear in life is settling um, that as long as I'm a part of this, which I hope for many, many years, and then my kids and grandkids, we will never stop because I have a fear of not only setting, but being irrelevant and not making a difference and not making an impact. So, you know, again, you have to, you have to push that because a lot of people will say it's very easy to say, this is what we did last year. Let's re Let's do that. It's very hard to say, this is what we did last year and it was successful. Let's do something different. Yeah. That's extremely hard. And so you have to build that into the DNA and you have to continue to talk about it over and over and over again. And I think part of our vision, you know, we did a five year vision a year ago and said, we're going to play 24 7, 365, which again, look at whatever's normal. And I haven't shared this, our mindset, whatever's normal, do the exact opposite. Yeah. Most teams play in a league, they play during the summer. We said, well, what if we're not in a league? What if we played year round? What could that look like? And all of a sudden, our minds just expanded, and we started thinking differently. What if our ballpark wasn't just a ballpark? What if it was Banana Land? What if we had treehouse Airbnbs and zip lines across the field and speakeasies and trains and you name it? Mm-hmm. And so we started thinking of the ballpark as a Disney World. And so when you start expanding your mind and not thinking the way you've always done, then all of a sudden you you find inspiration in everything. I mean, literally we have a house in Tybee. And now this is funny because we had to sell our house and we were living in a, at an airbed. We, we bought a, a larger house for our expanding family and right next to the lighthouse. And I'm sitting outside and I'm watching on a Saturday afternoon, a line go to the lighthouse and climb up and climb down. And I'm watching this line and I'm like, this is way too many people. This is outrageous. They climb up. And they climb down. Mm-hmm. So I walk over there, and this this young man's working the ticket booth. And he said, "Would you like one?" I go, "No, no, no I don't. I don't want to climb up and climb down." But I go, "How many people are climbing up this today?" And he goes, ah, "It'll be a lighter. It'll be an okay day. We'll probably have about eight to 900 And I go, "Are they all paying ten dollars?" And he goes, "Yeah." And I go, what's a bad day for you? And he goes, well, yesterday we had thunderstorms all day. We had to shut it down for half the day. So we only had about 250. And I go, you still had 250 people pay $10. to come He goes, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the mini days over a thousand. So I'm sitting there, I'm watching this. And I'm like, why doesn't our stadium have the world's largest banana lighthouse? And an actual, like a banana, and it's in center field. People climb up to the top and they have a huge balcony that's overlooking 360 Savannah. So I call our architect the next day. I said, can you build this? He starts laughing. He goes, why not? And he started building it. And again, if, if I was comfortable with the way we've done things, I wouldn't have, you know, build that or try to have them build that. And yes, sharing that to the city of Savannah and the city manager, like what the heck is that? <laughs> right. And they were definitely like, we can't do that. And I want to say, well, why not? And that's when you can ask that. Why not? And what if And you ask those questions over and over again, just like a kid who keeps asking, why not? Come on, daddy. I want this. Come on, daddy, please, 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 daddy. I want this. A lot of the time they get what they want. I'm never going to stop asking why not and what if, and when you do that, that's how you can really innovate.
0: So, where do you think that that passion comes from in you? That this amazing passion you have to 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 ask these questions, to be willing to push these envelopes, to do this so differently. There's got to be something just inherent, genetically inside you that has burst up, you know, that has burst out of you. Where what, what's the root of all of that?
1: Well, there's two roots. You know, you go back, you got to look at childhood and I'm, I've am i become a lot more self-aware over the years. I think many of us, as we, uh, we bear down on it, it's tough, but it's worth it. Uh, you know, I was an only child and my parents were divorced when I was eight years old. My mother had a drug problem. My father fought to get custody of me. And my dad worked all the time. You know, he had to work really hard to keep our life going. And, you know, I was, I was the kid who did whatever he could to make his dad proud. So to give you an example um, you know, when we go to the baseball, when I was younger, you know, my dad would actually like offer like a dollar for home runs and 50 cents if I hit the wall. And, um, on my parent teacher conferences that I did really well, I'd have baseball cards in, inside my desk. And it was this, I, I know it sounds like forms of carrots, but I was rewarded for accomplishments. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at my Enneagram, I'm, most people think I'm a seven. It's all about fun and happiness. And I'm on, I'm actually a three driven by success. So as a kid, I was constantly still, um, my dad's 73 years old. He's battled two forms of cancer. He's the best, uh, we're best friends. Um, I'm still trying to make him proud. And I think, you know, in many years, hopefully, when I do lose him, it'll be the same kid trying to make his son proud, trying to make his daughter proud and his wife proud. So that's a big root of it. And then I think the other big root is your input affects your output. What I mean by this is a lot of people, when they get out, you know, 22, 23 years old, they stop reading. You know, they had to read a little bit in college, they graduate school, and they just get into their life. They go on social media, they do their thing. I didn't have that luxury. And what I mean by that is our team would have failed. So I started reading every book about big thinkers. I mentioned Walt Disney, P.T. Barnum, Jeff Bezos, Steve Jobs, every book about big thinkers. And I surround myself with it. And so every day I see not a baseball team, I'm seeing Amazon, I'm seeing Apple, I'm seeing Disney, I'm seeing Netflix. And so that dreaming and that big input that's put into my mind. I mean, every morning I wake up and I read Then I listen to a podcast and I'm listening to the same input, the same vegetables every day. Mm -hmm. So between that and trying to make my family proud, uh, that's that's the root of it all.
0: Yeah, it's kind of cool. I think that um, the big idea, you know, what's that big, what's the big idea? Those guys all had the big idea at some point and it evolves over time of what that big idea was. But um, it's cool to be able to say, this is the big idea. It's bigger than a baseball team. I mean, I, you know, I would imagine that when you decided to do this, despite your background in baseball... I mean, minor league baseball's not doing very well, right? I mean, for the most part. It's it's attendance was
1: down attendance was down dramatically again this year. Yeah, it's uh it's really static. I mean, we're we're doing more merchandise sales than every minor league team and they play three times the games. Yeah. So put that in perspective. Three times the games that many more people and we're doing more merchandise. So yes, minor league is challenged.
0: Yeah. I mean, I've, you know, just as a, as someone, as a fan who, who's followed it with the, the contraction of it and the, the way the players are treated, but more so just the, it's boring. It, you know, it just seems to me, you know, it's a, it's simply a shuttle. It's always been a shuttle. You know, you make it here, you fail, or you go up to the next level and you fail or you go to the next level, but it just seems like it's a, it's an unwinnable thing. So I would imagine then sitting back and saying, I've got this big idea. But I'm going to apply it into this space that's not exactly a growth space. That's an interesting decision that you made. Yeah, you know, it's it's really interesting. I I appreciate it. So
1: I never think about revenue, which is probably not a good thing. Luckily, I have some people on our team that can pay attention to that. I mean, literally after this past season, I remember our finance director and our president presented the financials to me. And I was like, ah, pretty good year. I mean, I knew it was a good year, but, you know, they, yeah. they, I don't need to focus on that. Walt Disney said it best. Um, money doesn't excite me. My ideas excite me. So, you know, that's that's what fires me up. Um, but to answer your question, which go back to it again, you were asking about just What's the done? you
0: know, the decision to apply your big idea. You're thinking about this kind of entrepreneurship oh. into a minor league baseball team or. a
1: Yeah, it it, it's, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. So to give you an idea, the Globetrotters have a ceiling. They've reached, you know, a certain amount of million in fans. And most people would argue, wow, if we could get to that ceiling, that'd be pretty high. I mean, they have three teams, they play 300 dates, et cetera, like that. And but um I, I don't see that as our ceiling. See, I see we have something unique that no one in the world has. And what I mean by that is WWE is you know a billion-dollar business, fans all over the world. Um, they have a headquarters, but they don't have a home. Arena
0: mm-hmm.
1: Globetrotters play all over the world. They don't have a home arena. Feld entertainment, another billion dollar brand as Disney on ice monster tour, Jurassic park, they have a headquarters, but don't have a home arena. So if we channeled more WWE, more Feld entertainment and did what they did as far as touring all over the world, plus we also have banana land. We have our Disneyland. So when you think about that, I see a much bigger ceiling. Cause now when we go all over the world playing. Well, you got to see where it started. Mm-hmm. We got to go plan a trip to, to banana land where they have all these, you know, experiences that you won't get in our ballpark. So then all of a sudden I see us much more comparable to Disney um, than any, than anyone else. And so for me, I, I don't see us as a minor league team where their ceiling is this many games They can increase revenue. I mean, we already reached our capacity. We have sold out every game since our first season, our wait list is at 12,000. Most people say, Oh, you re- you did it. You, you know, to me that, that, no, our yeah. capacity, capacity is all, it's all a state of mind. And most people say, That's your capacity. our capacity is larger than I'm even thinking probably right now. Because when you think playing all over the world, creating a banana land, then digital consumer products, all of that, it's, it's, it's awesome. It's exciting.
0: When I was first, when I first stumbled across the, the team and I was thinking, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to remember the stories about Bill Vec back in the day yeah. and what he was doing with baseball and, and, but he never did it at this level. He never did it with it was almost like he would do a gimmick and i would i i'm not saying not saying that disingenuously he was more gimmick focused and he would do it once in a while it wasn't like an every day you know you're doing four promotions every game he would do some things and get a lot of coverage out of it and then, of course he had the resources he ended up buying major league teams and bringing that to them but um, it's not as though i mean it's it's interesting cuz i think that even back then 40s 50s 60s he was a guy looking going, Yeah, baseball's kind of boring without this stuff added to it in some way. I need to do something to get more attention.
1: Yeah, I mean he he's I mean I, I have another poster right here of Bill Beck and it says innovation, I try not to break the rules, but merely test their elasticity. And that's a direct quote from him. And uh, he's another huge mentor of mine. And I think he was a complete pioneer. And I, and I'll I'll go a little bit against you saying that I don't think it was all just for gimmick's sake, I think he was obsessed with making the game more entertaining. Just very similar to I am. I think that's what he was obsessed with, But he had a, a dramatic amount of pushback from the owners because he was a major league owner doing things that, you know, today you can't even do. I mean, he was so far ahead of his time. So, yeah, I, mean, I, I think he set the tone for what could be done. But when you think about it, he was the only one. He was the only one. And he, and I think, think about this in the perspective. Um, I started talking to my wife Emily about this yesterday. Almost every major league owner, NFL owner, NBA owner, NHL owner, they didn't come from the sport, which is not a bad thing. I love outside influences, but they came from something that made them lots of money. Bill Vec, and myself, we came from up the industry. And so it puts us an unbelievable opportunity to be more scrappy. We don't have the resources. Vec never had a lot of resources. Right. He, you I mean, he had to get very creative. So we have to get more creative. We don't have also the money. We don't have the corporate way of telling you this is the way it's supposed to be. We have the perspective of the guy who sits in the stands with the fans, who doesn't have the owner's box, who literally every game we go undercover on, on our staff. I take the all-tuxedo off. I park with the fans. I walk in with the fans. I sit with the fans. I eat with the fans. I talk to the fans. That's exactly how Bill Vec was. It's exactly how Walt Disney was too. Mm-hmm. When he could go, uh, he actually go in disguise, and he would do the same thing through Disneyland uh, before he passed away. That's how you really become an owner for the fans. I think a lot of these owners, and I, there's some that do a great job. Mark Cuban is very aware. There's some that do a really job, but a lot of they just come in from all the success. They bring all these people. Corporate makes make more money. Increase my investment. Increase my value, and go from there. Uh, we'll never be like that.
0: Yeah. So a couple other questions for you before I let you go. um What's your proudest moment, professionally or personally? Either one, both. Either one, professional. I, whatever you want to share. Uh, I'll go quick. I'll go quick. uh Personally, emotional
1: story. Um, my wife and I, we uh, a birth story. We we're having a child. We didn't. We didn't find out it was boy or girl. And I'll never forget. It was May fourth, twenty eighteen. And we're in the hospital and everything's going well with the pregnancy. It's about time. And then all of a sudden the doctor, you hear this beeping sound and it's very fast. And the doctor starts, all right, I need more help. More people come in, more people come in. There's nine people in there. All of a sudden they're flipping Emily around. And it was a priority one, which is the fact, the biggest priority. i mean you have less than 10 minutes to get the baby out or the baby won't, uh, won't make it. And so I'm sitting there priority one, they wheel her out. And I'm standing there. They run and throw scrubs at me, I'm running. I run across the, the hospital. I get into the operating room and I see, I remember I vividly, I counted the people in there. There were 16 people. She's under and immediately they are, um, she's saying, I'm not gonna make it. I'm not, she couldn't breathe. So she's freaking out. My wife's freaking out. We have no idea what's gonna happen. And then all of a sudden I hear her crying and they hand over and they said, would you like to meet your baby boy? And it was a moment I'll never forget because we were this close to not, to losing our son. And she didn't know two hours later, whether we had a boy or girl, because she was out of it. And I handed her and we decided we're going to name him Maverick, which is a perfect name for what we were trying, you know, and we handed her and I just saw her face and I, and it was a moment that I'll never forget. And I had so much respect for the nurses, the doctors and everything. So I think I was as proud not only what happened there but for the nurses and the doctors and how well they work together and how fast it's i've never seen like it. it's the best teamwork in any business there ever was Uh, so that was that was a proud moment that just never forget that moment that's a great one that's a great one i can go professional if you want me to sure go go professional too um so there's a lot there's a lot of moments that stand out and there's a lot of special moments i mean back to family uh you know, we're now foster parents and, and, uh, we have two, two, three kids under three. Now we have a baby and another three-year-old with Maverick and my birthday, we played a game on, it was really special and they couldn't make it because Emily was working. They had to be at home with the babysitter and we're getting ready to do the March. And I remember completely out the March of that, uh, with the band and the players. And all of a sudden my two kids are waiting there for me on my birthday. I picked them, oh, wow. them up, started dancing in front of them for 500 pants. That was a really cool, cool moment. But here's the one I have to tell you, sorry, you, you'll be going, I can give you, I can give you a few extra minutes. Um, so I think the proudest moments happen a lot when you're overcoming adversity, when you're overcoming something, you know, uh, not just a regular success is great. And obviously we've overcome a lot from being down to our last dollar and sleeping on an airbed. But when you're trying something brand new, you've never done before, it can become a moment that you're just truly proud of. And again, just a guy trying to make my dad proud. You know, we learned we could have success in Savannah every game sold out, but the idea of taking the show on the road and playing in a different city hundreds of miles away and seeing will fans show up and how they respond. That was a big chance because no one else was doing it. So we went to Mobile, Alabama last year. And um, I remember we sold 7,000 tickets, both games sold out 3,500 each game. And the first night, was a disaster uh, in a good way. I mean, the lines were so big, the national anthem singer missed, couldn't get there in time, the traffic was so bad. So we actually had the whole crowd sing the anthem. So I had our announcer kick it off and I said, Shark, kick us off. And he goes, a one, a two, a one, two, three, four, take me out to the, I go, Shark, national anthem, national anthem, the whole crowd started laughing. They thought we planned that, complete disaster. Uh, The sound went out three times opening night, a lot of things went wrong. Night two was a different thing. We brought in a new sound engineer, made it work. The Bananas won in a walk-off. And this is when it's a moment I will never, ever forget. They won in a walk-off and all the fans stayed because it's Banana Ball, only a two-hour game. 3,500 fans there. One of our teammates uh, was walking down from the press box and saw a mother holding her two kids and she had tears coming down her face. And it was a really emotional moment. And I said, guys, Mobile, you've been amazing. Thank you so much for making this dream come true for us. I got one more surprise for you. Steve Jobs, one more thing. So we put out a surprise fireworks show for the entire stadium and I just that afternoon I changed the music and synced it to the greatest showman soundtrack so a six minute montage of greatest showman soundtrack I'm hugging all the players I'm hooting and hollering like I won the world series and then I run out the stadium because we want to exagree and thank all the fans and I run out there and the pep bands like Jesse we've never seen you like that you look like a kid in a candy star I was like we did it we did it and so we finish the game and the band starts playing and fans come out but they don't leave And so we have the pep band out there, the male cheerleading team, both teams, the umpires, including our dancing umpire, all of our staff, all of our characters, and the fans aren't leaving. Everyone's wanting pictures. Everyone's wanting autographs. We're about 45 minutes in uh, to our post-game set. The band usually does 30 minutes. The drummer at this point, like the whole band is exhausted. So I look at our director. He turns to the drummer and just says, just solo. And so I watch the drummer just doing a solo while everyone's resting there. They're like, we could do a few more. We do a few more. So they do a few more songs. And then all of a sudden I watch the tuba player. Start playing the opening uh, sounds to Stand By Me. And he starts playing, and I watch this organically happen. I watch the pep band come forward, the players come forward, the staff, they all put their arms around each other. And then I look up and I took my phone out, and I was like, oh, I never want to forget this moment. I took a video, both teams, the cast, the band, the players, everybody, arms around each other, singing Stand By Me an hour after the game ended in Mobile, Alabama. And I looked around, I said, this is special. And I got emotional. I said, there's nowhere else in the world this is happening. And I go, this is going to go all over the world. And now every game this summer in Savannah, the night finishes, the whole team, staff singing Stand By Me. And when we won the championship, the last game of the year, 100 fans joined in, arms all around each other, singing Stand By Me. That makes me proud.
0: That's awesome, and I can't think of a better way to end this conversation because I think it's a great way to finish it off and give people a lasting insight into Jesse Cole and the Savannah Bananas and your vision for it. Thank you very much. I think it's uh, when bringing people together is a really special moment. That's what this
1: podcast does, videos does. It's it's human connection. We need more of that. And it's amidst all the craziness of giving away Porta Johns, colon cleansings, guys on stilts, and all that. There's still a human element to it. Yeah. And that will
0: always yeah. uh, be what matters most to me and our team. I really appreciate you being on with me. And uh, I'm heading to Savannah. I got to come down and see a game.
1: <laughs> I we love I that. So,
0: I'm easy to find. So come over and see me. I'll find you. I'll look for the guy in the yellow tux. Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Narrative. Your feedback is always welcomed, as are your shares and, of course, your reviews. Please subscribe and review The Narrative on your podcast platform of choice, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts.